So it's an absolute gift to have Tyler with us this evening. Tyler is a really good friend, leads a church called TGC in Williamsburg, New York. Um, and our churches, particularly in the last, let's say, five or so years, have begun to sort of track more closely with one another. So we speak fairly regularly on Skype, and then we hang out every so often. Um, but Tyler's been to KXC, spoken a few times before. B and I flew out to do some stuff at their church. And it feels like we found family. And actually, we're ministering in, in very similar contexts like New York and um, London, you know, pretty similar dynamics, cultures. Um, so we've been learning from one another. And Tyler and the community that he leads, TGC, they are such an amazing church. Um, and what a gift they've been to us. Um, there's conversations that we've had, Skype conversations, that, that have led to whole teaching series. So for those that have been here long enough, do you remember the War of Desire series that we did? Um, no one does. It was a great series, by the way. Um, but that began in a conversation with, with Tyler. And when you begin to track with people and learn from one another, what a gift that becomes to a whole church family. So we as a church family want to say, you are so welcome here. We absolutely love what you carry. And thank you so much. So why don't we give a huge round of applause um, to Tyler. And let me pray. So Lord, uh, we ask that you'd come and strengthen him now. As he delivers this message for the third time, Lord, give him the energy that he needs. But Lord, as we open up the scriptures and um, listen to your words, your truth, Lord, would they go to the deepest parts of who we are and bring transformation and bring life. So speak to us now, we pray, through your word, by your spirit, and through your servant, Tyler. Amen. Amen. So when I was eight years old... My parents signed me up for this Tuesday night recurring event titled Bible Study Fellowship, which was exactly as exciting as it sounds like it would be. And uh, we had homework every week. There was a worksheet with questions on it, assigned reading with comprehension. And I have a vivid memory of the very first time that my father sat me down on a Saturday afternoon to help me do my Bible study homework. And it was week one, so we began on page one of the scripture in Genesis. And eventually we got to this line, and they were both naked and felt no shame. Now, eight-year-old me could not handle a mention of nudity from the Bible. It was completely unexpected, and so I just began laughing hysterically. My dad tried to handle this patiently at first, but then he kind of told me I needed to pipe down and move on. But knowing that I couldn't laugh just made it funnier. And eventually my dad got quite frustrated and he raised his voice and threatened punishment. And the very first memory I have with the scripture is one that involves threat, punishment, and a heavy sternness. When I was a teenager, I fell in love with God, and I had encountered God in so many ways, but very few of them involved me alone just opening the scriptures. But I did notice that the people that I admired most, the people that seemed to be most in love with this God I had encountered, had a deep relationship with this book. And so I started setting my alarm 15 minutes earlier to try to begin my day with reading. But if I'm honest, I never quite got into the routine. It always felt kind of like going to the gym you know, like when I do it, I feel glad that I did it, but more often than not, I come up with some excuse to push it to the side, and I lived with this mixture of guilt and resolve to do better within me always. Age 17, when I was a senior in high school, uh, my last class of the day had free reading. So there was a half-hour block at the end of the day when you could read anything you wanted. And I just felt this nudge from the Spirit that this was God's invitation to me to begin meeting Him in the Scripture. 
And so I know this is going to seem like such a small risk, but it was terrifying for 17-year-old me. I carried a copy of the scriptures in my backpack every Friday to school, and I would sit on the back row of this class and take a Bible out of my backpack and open it up and begin reading for a half hour once a week. And then months into that, I had this one particular Friday where I was reading somewhere near the end of the Gospel of John, and I just began to weep. Because I was, I was seeing Jesus. I was seeing love enfleshed in a person. Love personified for the first time. And it was just too much for me to take in. If you fast forward exactly a year after that, I'm sitting on the back row of another classroom. This one in Bible college. I was training to become a pastor in a room full of people that were also training to become pastors. And the relationship to the scriptures in that environment was not often one of love. It was master this book and then use it to further your own purposes. And something happened to me there. A bit of that got inside of me. And I began to try to master this book and then use it for my own purposes. My first job out of college involved teaching the Bible to a group of second generation immigrants living below the poverty line in New York City, all of whom had English as their second language. So the first group of people I tried to teach the scripture to were people that had a reading comprehension level lower than the average nine-year-old. And that in many ways saved my life because it was in interacting with them that I realized that this is not a book to be used as a weapon to further my own purposes. This is the way that God has translated himself to all sorts of ordinary people in all sorts of times and places and cultures throughout history. My journey with this book is one that has had plenty of bumps, but these pages have also been the most consistent place of encounter with God throughout my life. This book is a meeting place for me with the God who has given me everything. And the reason that I tell you all of that is because I have a story with Scripture. And so it's important for me that you know that I'm not just some professional Christian that narrowed my worldview down to one tiny little book at some point in my life, and now I've crossed an ocean to offer you my expert opinion. I am an ordinary person with a very complex history with this book. I have a story with the scripture, and when I stand in front of you to talk about the Bible, I'm dragging every bit of that story in with me. I have a story with the scripture, and so do you. You have your own version of familiarity or unfamiliarity with the biblical narrative. You enter into tonight with the degree of openness or suspicion based on that personal story. Since the day you were born, every bit of you has been shaped. What you see, what you value, what you think of as normal or abnormal. So no one has ever come to the scriptures with a clean slate. Like some of you will sit here tonight and probably take out notes like you're doing exam prep because maybe this will finally be where I get the tips and tricks to start meeting God in this book that up to this point in my life has just confused and bored me. And some of you will have your guard up the minute you hear tonight's subject matter because you've only ever seen the Bible used as a weapon to cut people down or to win arguments. And so you know God, but you're suspicious of the people that study him hardest. Some of you love Jesus, and you crave experience with Jesus, and the Bible is sort of that part of Jesus that, it's that thing that got stuck to your Savior somewhere along the way, so you put up with it. 
but you definitely dance around it and look away from the parts that you don't like. And some of you will probably just be outright offended by the Bible. I mean, hang on a second. We are talking about a patriarchal book full of violence, racism, polygamy, and prejudice, right? I mean, this is the book that throughout history has been used as the justification for oppression, war, and slavery. Under what circumstances do you keep reading that book? What am I missing here? I have a story with the scripture, and so do you. And so the elephant in the room that we have to acknowledge when we begin a conversation about the scripture is that every last one of us is dragging those unique stories in with us. And so I want to give us a common story as a starting place tonight. The theologian Karl Barth describes opening up this book as entering into another reality so that we can participate with God on his terms, not on ours. And the way he describes that experience is by telling a story. Imagine that there's a group of men and women that live in a huge warehouse. They've only ever lived in this warehouse. They were born in this warehouse, and they've never stepped out of it. And this particular warehouse has no doors, no entrances or exits, but it does have windows. But these windows are caked in dust, and no one's ever bothered to look outside because everything I know, everything that's familiar to me, everything that I've ever thought I needed is within this warehouse. And then one day, a kid who doesn't know any better walks up to one of those windows, and he wipes the grime off of it, and he peers outside. And he sees people out there walking and living, operating in an entirely different world. And so he starts to create a bit of a commotion, and a bunch of kids gather around this window, and they're all looking outside, watching these people, observing this different world. And then they see one of these people stop and look up. And he says something, and so all a bunch of others gather around, and they're all pointing in the sky, and so instinctively, these kids look up, And they just see the roof of the warehouse. Who would stop for no reason at all and look up at nothing at all? But of course, right outside of the warehouse window, they're not looking up at nothing at all. They're looking at a flock of geese in flight or at an airplane that's flying overhead or a shooting star across the night sky. They look up and they see an expanse of heavens, but these kids look up and they just see the ceiling of their warehouse. But what would happen if one of them had the courage to throw open the window and walk outside? What would happen if one of these kids coaxed the others outside and they looked up and they could see the same expanse, the whole other world outside of their own? Bart wraps up the story saying, this is what happens when we open the Bible. We enter into the totally unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly above us, life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything like this. And so with all of our unique stories and the range of experiences that we drag into this topic, the common ground we share is that we want to enter God's world and remain in control. And the moral of the story is that option is not open to us. We cannot see the heavens from the safety and familiarity of the warehouse. To discover another reality requires the risk of letting go of the one that has made me feel safe and comfortable. And if you read the Bible cover to cover, you'll find this common thread ties all these stories from all these different authors together, is that in the beginning there was awe. Every last one of them let go of their familiar world to discover awestruck wonder waiting on the other side of that risk. Johannes Hartle writes, awe is the beginning of Christianity. 
In the beginning, there was no institution, there were no rules, and not even any fixed teaching. In the beginning, there was an encounter, such a disturbing encounter that it took the newborn church centuries of rubbing its amazed eyes to truly realize what had just happened to it. Before there were theological dictionaries or various interpretations, before there were councils gathered to assemble scrolls into a coherent whole, before you or I had a personal history with a leather-bound book, all the way back when people reading the Bible didn't even realize they were reading the Bible. They were just reading the, the history of their ancestors or the scraps of Jesus' sermons or a letter from a friend. All the way back then, there was awe. And I want to introduce you to that tonight, to the essence and the power of this thing. I want you to know this book as it was originally written by the pen of its authors. I want you to know what you're holding when you open up the Bible. I want you to know the power that it's had in the hands of people throughout history. And in spite of everything you drag to it, the power that it still has in your hands. And so there's just one question that we want to take a look at tonight. What am I holding when I'm holding the Bible? Now, the most straightforward way to answer that question is that the Bible is not just one book. It's a library of books that all originate in the ancient history of Israel. It is a collaboration from a bunch of different authors that's broken into two distinct parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament in Hebrew was called the Tanakh, And that's an acronym. The T stands for Torah, or the law, the first five books of the Bible. The N means Nevi'im, or the prophets, those who are interpreting Israel's past or their present based on the future promises of God. And then the K stands for Ketuvim, or writings. These are the poetic books of prayer and song and wisdom that the Israelites used to frame their worship. And that is where the Hebrew Bible stops. And the trouble with stopping there is it's a great story missing an ending. The story is building and building and building toward the day that God will enter in himself. And then the prophet Malachi punctuates the final sentence in the last book of the Old Testament. And the story ends. It's a massive build-up to a staggering disappointment. It's the end of a brooding, dark indie film when you thought it was Spielberg. But the New Testament offers us an ending. The Christian Bible adds the New Testament, and that goes like this. A self-appointed prophet named Jesus showed up, claiming to be the fulfillment of the Tanakh. And that claim gathered a large enough following that ended up getting him killed. But 72 hours after that, no one could find his body. The followers that knew him personally, that witnessed not just his teaching, but were up close to see his life, they were called apostles. And what we call the New Testament was originally called the writings of the apostles, because that group wrote every last word of it. And it, too, has three distinct parts. There are the Gospels, which are the four historically reliable biographies of Jesus' life. Then there's Acts, which is the history book of the early church. And then finally, the letters, which were written to communities or churches that popped up all over the Greco-Roman world. And now throughout Christian history, during the, the beautiful eras of revival and hope, and during the darker times of scandal and decline and corruption, there has never been a moment when the Christian church did not recognize the Tanakh and the apostolic writings, or what you and I probably call the Old and the New Testament, as scripture inspired by God himself. So that is the base level foundational information of what you're holding when you're holding the Bible. But 
There's a deeper layer than that. Because you have to remember that the biblical invitation is not to information transfer. It is to whole life transformation. The biblical claim is that this book is alive. And so it's not just an invitation to know. It is an invitation to see. To open the Bible is to wipe grime off the warehouse window and look out into another world. And so how we see is about the content and the form of the scriptures. So let's begin with the content. The content of the Bible, when you encounter it in the time and place that each piece of it was written from, is more than just a new philosophical consideration about the mystery of this life. It is to peer into another reality altogether. Uh, Let me show you this. Let's begin in Genesis, the very beginning of the story. The opening pages of the Bible do not today and have never had a monopoly on the origins of life. In fact, when Genesis showed up in the world for the first time, it was just one of many theories of creation. An equally popular theory was called the Enum Elish, which went like this. In the beginning, a battle took place in the pantheon of the gods, and one god, Marduk, challenged another god, Tiamat, to a fight to the death. Marduk won and then cut Tiamat's body in half, used the top half of Tiamat's body to paint the cosmos across the sky. The bottom half of Tiamat's body was formed into the earth that we walk around on, and then people were created to populate the earth to take care of the most menial slave labor tasks needed to keep creation going. Now, before you mock that story from your post-Enlightenment throne as barbaric and primitive, you need to know that that was the leading theory of how creation happened, what the meaning of life was in the world that Genesis popped into. And we should take just a moment to think, what would that story do when it entered a human life? How might that influence how you think about yourself how you think about others, and what you believe matters and lasts in this life. It was into that world that Genesis was written. And here's what distinguished the Bible's opening pages from every other creation story, is that every single other story began with a bunch of gods, a battle of violence, and the victorious, powerful God then had the right to creation. Every single other story starts this way. In the beginning, there was power. And then Genesis comes along with this claim. In the beginning, there was love. Before the creation of the world, when there was nothing but a formless, dark void, complete emptiness, there was only a triune God in perfect, loving community. That is a profoundly different starting place. And that says something profoundly different for who you are, who God is, who we are to one another, and what truly lasts in this life. Into a power-obsessed, violent world, Genesis said something entirely foreign. People were created imago Dei, in God's image. You didn't come alive so you could take care of the menial tasks to keep creation going. You came alive because God stooped down and breathed life into your lungs. Holy CPR was performed on your lifeless body. And you started walking around in this world. Not so you could take care of the work God thought was beneath him, but so you could experience the perfect loving communion that existed before anything else. When there was nothing, there was only love. And in the end, there will be only love. That's not a new theory. That's another world. Can you see that? 
Now, as you thumb through the Bible page after page, it's just one example after another like this. So let's get back to the New Testament. I'll I'll give you one more. The Old Testament was written almost exclusively in Hebrew, which makes perfect sense because all of the authors were Jewish. The New Testament was written almost exclusively in Greek, but all the authors were still Jewish. So why? Why the change of language? Well, because between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, Alexander the Great conquered pretty much the entire globe. And he did everything he could to try to turn the whole world into Greeks, or at least make sure that the whole world spoke Greek. And so the world that the New Testament was written into had a lingua franca. The common language was Greek. No matter what language you spoke around your dinner table with your family, if you wanted to start a business or run for a government office or export a product around the world, you had to be able to speak Greek. Everyone did. In fact, by the time that Jesus was born, a bunch of other first century greats you would have heard of, like Homer and Plato and Aristotle, had already authored their literary works, every last one of them written in classical Greek. And that's because if you wanted to write something that would be taken seriously, that would be preserved and would last and be stored away in libraries, it had to be written in Greek. But not just any Greek, it had to be written in classical Greek. Because there was a form of writing that said, what I'm putting down here is information to be taken seriously. In fact, an upper echelon level of education is a prerequisite for interacting with this material because the common peasant living in the slum could not read classical Greek but could only speak common Greek. And then the New Testament shows up, and it is written in common Greek. Eugene Peterson comments on this. It was a surprise. Our Bibles, written not in the educated and polished language of the scholars, historians, philosophers, and theologians, but in the common language of fishermen and prostitutes, homemakers and carpenters. But of course it was, right? I mean, this was Jesus' preferred company. These, this was the, the company of people that he chose the most. His whole movement is built on fishermen and prostitutes, homemakers and carpenters. Mark chapter 12 says the common people heard him gladly. And so to read the story of Jesus was so much more than an intellectual consideration. It was to enter into a different world where there was a different system of value, a whole other scale for measuring who and what matters. It is so difficult to exaggerate just how foolish it would have been when the Apostle Paul carried these scrolls written in this dialect to Mars Hill to be considered by the elite philosophers of his day. It's so difficult for us to exaggerate just how crazy it would have been even just for a Roman homeowner to open up a scroll written in common Greek and give it real consideration. But it is equally hard for us to exaggerate just how dignifying it would have been for a trafficked prostitute to read the story of God in this language. Or or for a leper in a leper colony to read this in his common tongue and just by the use of language to be told that you have a seat at the table with the powerful. Such an effort was made to make sure that the New Testament was written in a way that was accessible to all, that there are approximately 500 words you'll find in the New Testament that you cannot find anywhere else in the whole world of Greek literature up to that point. 
In fact, linguists have come up with a whole new category for the language we see in the New Testament. There's classical Greek of the preserved classical authors. Then there's Koine Greek, which is spoken in the common slums. And then there's biblical Greek, which we find at the first point in the New Testament. The theologian Richard Roth called this the language of the Holy Spirit. So in the first century Greco-Roman world, you get about a paragraph into the first page and realize this is not a new philosophy. This is another world. The content of the scriptures are a revelation. They're a beautiful contradiction to all that was familiar in the empire. But it's not just the content it's also the form of Scripture. Because the very form that Scripture takes is also an invitation for us to see. It, the brilliance of Scripture is that the form is actually a part of the content. Reading the Bible is a lot more like walking into a library and finding the right book than it is to open up a single book. And that is because there are various forms of literature all throughout the Scripture. And we all read different types of literature with different expectations and different interpretations. So, for example, my favorite book is East of Eden by John Steinbeck which of course it is so American, right? My son's favorite book, uh, my son Hank who's three years old, his favorite book is The Tiger Who Came to Tea, which is thoroughly British. Do you guys read this? Or is this just a ploy to get Americans to buy? I never know, but the, the big plot twist at the end of this book is that they go out for sausages and chips for supper and stiff cooking in at home. It's so British. But... If I open either one of these books, I'm doing the exact same activity. I'm reading. But for obvious reasons, I come to each of these books with an entirely different set of expectations, and I interpret the information that I'm reading in a completely different lens. And you instinctively do that all the time. When you crack open a textbook, you have a certain set of expectations. I'm here to learn and to understand. But if you read a poem, you have different expectations. I'm, I'm here to interpret and to be moved and imagine. If you read a BBC article, you have different expectations. I'm here because one person has witnessed and distilled information that they're now delivering to me. And that's important because when you open up the Bible, you are reading 43% narrative, meaning story. Like Exodus and the Gospels and Acts. And, and you read story to learn and understand and gain context. But then 33% of the Bible is poetry, like the Psalms and Proverbs and the Prophets, which is to contemplate and imagine and be moved. But still 24% of the Bible is discourse, like the law and the letters, which are real events being distilled by an eyewitness and then applied through the author. So when you flip through the pages of the Bible, it's as if you're walking through a library and you need to know what section you're in when you're pulling each book out so that you can interact with the material. And the beautiful part about this is that the various forms of literature in the Bible dignify the whole person. See, the scripture is not an intellectual read, it's a human read. It is to be read not just with your mind, but also with your will and your emotions and even your body. And that's because you can read the exact same information as a letter and as a story and as a poem, and you will react to it differently. My grandmother has written me birthday cards, letters, since the day I was born all the way up into my mid-twenties, so I have this collection of letters from her. But... 
my grandmother, I've also gotten to know her life story in bits and pieces over the course of my day. So I know her narrative or, or her story. And then there was this once when I was at an open mic and I heard someone stand up and read a poem that began with the whole story that was told just by his grandmother's veiny, wrinkled hands. And when I heard his poetry, I began to weep in gratitude for my grandmother's life. Now, why is that? Why does a letter and a story and a poem all have a different effect on me, even if I'm hearing the same information? Because each type of communication is an invitation to enter the same story in a different way. And when we read the scriptures, we come in contact with the delivery of information and then the explanation of the information, and then an invitation to embody or feel the weight of that information. And so the Bible is written as an invitation to see another reality. When you hold this book, you're holding all of that. But you're holding even more than just that because there's an even deeper layer to what you're holding when you're holding the Bible. So to return to the warehouse one more time, the invitation isn't just to see another reality. The invitation is to step out of the warehouse and begin to live in another reality. The author Dallas Willard says, The teachings of the Bible, no matter how thoroughly studied and firmly believed, can never by themselves constitute our personal walk with God. They have to be applied to us as individuals and to our individualized circumstances or they remain no part of our lives. See, the information in Scripture matters profoundly for who you become. It is so important to start with the right information, but the information in Scripture does not dictate who you become. That's why Christians with the right information can be the best people you know, and Christians with the right information can be the worst people you know, right? Because information alone does not change us. Even the right information doesn't change us. Love changes us. And love is so much more personal than information. And the scriptures are so much more personal than information. You see, the surprising claim that maybe you've overlooked that's on every page of the biblical story is this. You are a word God spoke. You are a word spoken by God. See, there's this pattern in the creation story. God said, and then there was. God said, and then light was ripped from the darkness. God said, and then land was separated from sea. God said, and then vegetation sprung up from the soil. God said, and then animal life was teeming. There there were flocks of birds over Alaska. There There were schools of fish in the Atlantic. There were stampedes in the Amazon. God spoke, and then you came out kicking and screaming in a crowded hospital room. That's the biblical story. Ephesians chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now oftentimes people will use this verse to like argue about the bounds of free will. But to use it that way is to miss the stunning claim. For he chose us. Chose, the English word chose comes from the Greek root word lego, which means to speak. A more literal translation is he spoke us before the creation of the world. You are here because God spoke you before anything else. 
before he hung the world just the right distance from the sun, before he separated light from dark, before he brought matter together to form all that we see and know, you were a thought in God's imagination and a word on his lips. See, the Bible, properly understood, is more of a deeply personal memoir than it is a philosophical theory. At the deepest level, what you're holding when you're holding the Bible is a biography. It is the true story of your life and of mine, and it's an invitation to live the life we were always made to live. This book started with a bunch of people having an individual awestruck encounter with God. And this book leads to more people having an individual awestruck encounter with God. That's what happens when you discover what you're reading. When you find yourself in this story. Maybe a picture would help. There's a woman named Mary Carr who's authored multiple memoirs. And I've read them all. And her first one, and her most popular one, is called The Liar's Club. It's a description of her childhood abuse at the hands of her alcoholic mother. And I honestly can't recommend it because it is unapologetically graphic and honest. And it is devastating to read. But more recently, she wrote another memoir titled Lit, which is the true story of how she accidentally became an alcoholic mother the very person that she promised herself she would not become. And I want to read you a bit of that story, but you're going to need some context first. So by the time you get to the chapter I'm going to read from, she has found sobriety through Alcoholics Anonymous. Her sponsor, which is 12-step language for a mentor, has recommended reading the Bible, and she responds, come on. I mean, I know that I need sobriety, and prayer is a part of the equation. I'm coming around on prayer so long as it's on my terms, but pretending that the framing context for my relationship to whatever God is is an archaic Jewish book full of tribal warfare? No thanks. That's the story that she drug into the scriptures. This one weekend, Mary was going to visit her mom, which she knew would be an environment full of emotional triggers. All of the pain of her childhood bubbled back up each time she saw her mom. And so her sponsor gave her a piece of paper with two biblical passages written on it. Psalm 51, verses 7 through 12, for when she needed to pray for forgiveness. And James chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, for when she needed to resist temptation. She said, look, I'm praying these scriptures over you this weekend, and I know you're so out on the Bible. But will you mind just keeping this piece of paper in your pocket? Because I think you might need it at some point while you're there. So she folds it up and puts it in her back pocket and then drives to her mom's house. And the first night that she's there, she, her mom's just kind of chipping away at her with critical comments. And eventually that space between the two of them that has been worn thin through pain and wounds and unforgiveness can't take the weight that is sitting on it and she snaps And she screams a bunch of things that she cannot take back. And it's like decades of pain that have built up in her just come spilling out. And everything is a blur. And then finally when she's done and she's breathless and she refocuses, she's looking at an elderly woman. Old enough to be in a nursing home. A woman who's set in her ways a long time ago. A woman who's carrying her own story and her own pain. And she can't take back anything that she's just let out. And she realizes that finally saying all the stuff that 
that she honestly felt has not made the space between them any more bearable. And so that night, when her mom goes to bed, she stays up for a long time because every time she closes her eyes, she can feel that pit of regret in her stomach and she's watching like a movie everything she said replaying in her imagination. And so eventually she restlessly gets up and somewhere between one and two in the morning, she's fumbling through old boxes in the living room, just trying to find something to do. And she finds her mom's childhood Bible, which she had never seen before. And immediately she thinks of her sponsor and thinks, oh, I'm going to have to relive all of this when I tell her the story. And she picks up the Bible and just kind of flips through it, and she notices a couple flashes of color. And so she goes to find the page where there was color, and there she comes to it, highlighted in blue chalk, Psalm 51, verses 7 through 12. The exact reference folded up in her back pocket while she's sitting there. And then she flips forward, curious, and she eventually gets there, breathtaking when she comes to the page. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, highlighted in the blue chalk of her mother's childhood hand. This Bible was completely untouched except for those two exact references down to the syllable. Now I want to read you Mary's words. This is not the parting of the Red Sea. This is not a dead friend arisen from his gauze windings and peering out of the stone tomb or the stilling of waves about to upend my boat. This is not the healing of a leper, not a bullet hole entering the front of my helmet and exiting out the rear without touching the head that wore it. As miracles go, it may not even seem like one, but it feels as if God once guided my mother's small hand circa 1920-something to make two notes I'd very much need to find 70 years later, a message that I could be made new, that I am, have always been, loved. Love, not information. That's what changes us. And something unexpectedly happened that night. Love came crashing in and Mary found herself in the middle of the ancient story. She realized that she too is a word God spoke, that she was a thought in his imagination and a word on his lips before a single other thing came to be. She realized that her story in some way fit within the context of this ancient story. And when all of that hits you, where does it leave you? Awestruck. The story started with awe, and it always leads to awe. Back to Mary's words. Mock that experience as random chance if you like. But from then on, I start to arrive in the present as never before, standing up in it as if pushed from behind like a wave, for it feels as if I was made from all the possible shapes a human might take, not to prove myself worthy, but to refine the worth I'm formed from. Acknowledge it. Own it. Spend it on others. See, the Bible is not a religious encyclopedia. It is not an outdated philosophical theory. It is not an expired rule book you have to put up with so you can have the spiritual experience that you came for. It is a biography. Mine and yours. And yours. And yours. And yours. And yours. And the invitation of this living book is new life formed from unconditional love. The only trouble is that 
People always have such a hard time getting where Mary was that night. Broken enough to be on their knees in the middle of the night looking for life in the pages of the book. And so God brought the book to life. John chapter 1, we finally made it to the words that Pete read over us at the beginning of the night. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, the stunning claim on page one of Jesus' story is that you and I chose a different world than the one God created us for, so he took on our form and climbed down into ours. Jesus wrapped the ancient story in human flesh and then walked around among us. He tore the roof off of the warehouse so that there was no longer any barrier between him and us, between heaven and earth. And at the end of John's gospel, on the final page, there's an even more stunning claim that you and I can come fully alive in this fallen world. That we can live in a broken, corrupted, unfulfilling story with the kind of life that goes on forever. That there is a sort of living that outlasts the darkness. The word can become your flesh. John wrote another letter called Revelation. It ends the story that began with you as a word on the lips of God, and it tells the pathway to that sort of living. Revelation chapter 10. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take it and eat it. Don't read it. Eat it. What is the pathway to true life in a fallen world? Well, to borrow a phrase, it is eat this book. Get this ancient story into your bloodstream so that you become a living word, so that you become an imperfect, grace-filled, increasingly redeemed, unique version of the only lasting story walking and talking in this world. Don't study this book. Don't read this book. Eat it. Consume it. Embody it. Become it. That was God's invitation when he folded a library of awestruck encounters into one single book. And so I want to land here tonight. The early church was stunning. A bunch of ordinary people with this word alive in them, forming a community in the world that looked like a compelling contradiction to everything they had ever seen in the empire. And then by the third century, that little community had turned into a massive movement. They had gone from a mocked and oppressed minority to the official religion of the developing world. In terms of measurables, it was a raging success. Church attendance had never been higher. The church had never been more powerful. And yet underneath the hood, it was dying. Because the true life that had been formed within them at first had become diluted by a taste for all sorts of other things. The compelling contradiction had become great ideas, good intention, and compromised lives. And by the third century, the church looked pretty much like it does now. A social gathering of people who hold to a common worldview and a set of foundational beliefs who are just as anxious, just as insecure just as nervous about tomorrow, just as bent on your approval of me, just as self-absorbed, just as unhappy, just as angry, just as reactive, just as distracted as everybody else. So how does a compromised church recover its true nature as a compelling contradiction? Eat this book. 
See, during the era of compromise that swept through the church, there were a few radicals who withdrew to the desert, mimicking Jesus' temptation. And they formed small communities that concentrated the potency of the invitation. And the result was life so compelling that people actually began to leave the familiar safety of the city to come and live with nothing with these communities in the desert. Because they finally saw life that really was worth leaving everything else behind for. Today, we call those radicals the desert fathers and mothers. They preserved the purity of the life of Jesus during an era of compromise. Their legacy is that during an era of compromise, they preserved the church. And that resilient legacy was grounded in this one thing, the way they read Scripture. They called it Lectio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading. They digested this story in a simple way that so reshaped them that it woke up a sleepwalking church and drew out awestruck wonder from the watching world. They did not read this book. They ate this book. And in this... In our era of compromise, the sleepy church and the distracted city are waiting for the same thing. They're waiting for a few radicals to be formed by the only true story in the midst of this one that is failing too subtly for most to notice. Restlessness, depression, anxiety, insecurity, all of these are just outward groanings of an inward condition. I have everything and I have nothing at the same time. Romans 8 says, all of creation groans for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And London is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to realize that they are sons and daughters of God. So what if there were a few radicals among us? Radicals who did not withdraw to the desert, but became the word made flesh again. Embodied the ancient story again right here. Desert fathers and mothers right in the heart of the city.